right or left is what we say as a party. It's about right and wrong. It's about putting in checks and balances so that whoever comes to power, I'm not interested in who comes to power. I'm interested that when they're in power, the aphrodisiac of power doesn't, it corrupts, it does corrupt, it's human nature, but there are checks and balances in place to ensure that we, the people, are protected and the money and the taxes that we pay are not squandered and put into their friends' pockets and, you know, that corruption doesn't spread like a virus around our institutions. So we are there, we're there to do systemic change. That is our goal. On the point of electoral reform, uh, I've read a bit of your sort of pre-draft of your manifesto, and you've spoken about making 21, for making voting compulsory from 21, about lowering the voting age to 16, about introducing or supporting rather proportional um, representation, about having, making sure there's mechanisms so that people can vote online. Uh, where do you think the mark is in terms of introducing more electoral reforms? Because right now we have a two-party system, which I would argue is quite stable. We're, we were able to move through three premierships quite swiftly without any um, sort of havoc, which wouldn't, be, which wouldn't be the case in many other democracies. And um, why do you think these um, policies are very important to introduce and are needed for change? I would say that we have a performative system. We don't really have democracy in this country at all. What we have is two, two parties who, one comes into power and then the opposition actually has no power. We almost have a autocracy when a government comes in because they control the, the legislative business of the day. They control everything that happens. We don't, this is all a game. This is all performance, question time, all of it. The, the opposition, we don't, we have, we're kidding ourselves if we think we have a democracy. Um, so that's why we need electoral reform because one voice, one vote should count. Um, and it's the only way that I can see that we bring in, we build, rebuild trust and people feel that they're represented because the one uh, group of people which are growing in this country ahead of the next election uh, is a group saying they won't vote, they're disenfranchised, they don't believe anything is possible. I mean, that is close to 50% of the electorate at the moment in the polling that you can see. The, the thing we hear across the country is, what's the point? That is the most common um, sentiment that's put out there. So if you don't, ha electoral reform is not just right, it's fair and it's what people deserve. And actually, what is the most disgraceful thing, I believe, is that the Labour Party, 83% of the membership of the Labour Party, uh, support um, proportional representation. It's a parliamentary party that don't want it because it serves them. And the Conservative government will never bring it in because they don't see it. They, they I mean, you know, they've just said that they're not going to allow you under 25 to actually drive somebody in your car. They don't believe in fairness and, and inclusiveness. And so I think we have to bring in proportional representation because it's the right thing to do. I would actually go as far as not just to say compulsory voting, but I think that um, the day of voting should be either on a Sunday or a bank holiday and make it democracy day because actually our democracy needs defending. You speak of the Labour Party and um, correct me if I'm wrong, I see a lot of similarities between some of your policies and that of the Labour Party's. Uh, namely, the House of Laws reforms that you proposed. So, you've, you've, you've proposed um, getting rid of hereditary peers, having 10 year limits uh, for members of the House of Lords, for reducing the number of seats to 400. Um, don't you think that contributes to some sort of destabilization um, in, in the way our politics works? And don't you think that it would politicize the way appointments work, as we've seen with Prime Minister's appointments? Um, and do you think that it would actually make any effective change to the way the House of Lords already runs? 
I would say the House of Lords isn't effectively running at the moment. And actually, I think you'll find um, Mr. Brown was actually very upset with my response to his proposal in that I said that his proposals for House of Lords reforms were utopian rather than utilitarian, in that um, he says he can do it in one parliament and that you go, it goes to a fully elected chamber. But my criticism of his report, and actually the report says that it, it didn't start with the very most basic and fundamental question, which is we have to decide what is the role of the House of Lords. Because if the answer is that it is a legislative oversight chamber, then that then constitutes, the constitution of that has to reflect that decision. And I believe it is an oversight chamber. Um, it, and though, therefore, it needs to have people who can do that role, which is why I say no hereditary peers, no religious individuals, you know, it should be 400 because that's actually the number of seats that are in the House of Lords. So very, I'm very practical about this, is that you need them all there at one time so they can actually vote and debate. Um, and uh, there are other reforms I would bring into the House of Lords, but you cannot separate, you cannot take it away from the, from the lower chamber. This idea that you can, you're going to transport it up north or something like that. It needs to be by the lower chamber. The lower chamber and the upper chamber work together. But it is a very important house. Because if you, like this government, um, uh, not this government, but previous Conservative governments, you know, on the 28th of April last year, there were nine acts that received royal assent that changed our rights on the streets, in the courts, in the ballot box, you know, the Elections Act, the uh, Judicial Review Act, the Police Act, the um, Nationality and Borders Act. All of these things changed our rights in our country. They all re uh, got through Parliament. They were written in the space of less than a year, some of them. How can that be good law? They push through laws that are going to have huge un unintended consequences. I mean, if you look at the moment, um, their idea of trying to limit our voices on the street, they passed the police act, gave the police powers, but people are still demonstrating on the streets because they can't figure out if they actually enforce that act, there'd be 400 people in jail every week. Our prisons can't cope with that. So, you know, they've, they've pushed through bad law and that's not good for our country. Uh, speaking of royal sin and, and law, um, I want to go back a bit to um, what people like to call Miller II, um, your second... It's so weird having Miller one of them. <laughs> your second constitutional uh, uh, case that you took um, to the Supreme Court, which, um, of, of course, ruled in your favour unanimously. unanimously. Um, do you think that that case sort of showed the practicability of um, the separation of powers? And do you think that the Supreme Court has too much power? Do you think it doesn't have enough power? Do you think Parliament's sovereignty is enforced at the moment? Do you think Parliament needs to be more sovereign? And what are some of the ways that we can ensure that there are an effective separation of powers? I think both the cases prove that the separation of powers is alive and well. Um, the whole idea that the courts couldn't put their tanks on political lawns was a load of nonsense, because actually, of course, they can when it's a separation of powers. Because what the, both cases were about was that we have a representative democracy, and therefore, Parliament has to be involved when our rights are changed. You can't just shut down Parliament. That is literally shutting down our democracy. So the courts were right to rule on, on both the cases, especially when we don't have a written constitution. It's important that they were able to clarify that, um, that issue about Parliament's sovereignty. So both cases were actually about the same thing, um, even though there was different cases and different uh, prime ministers. But... That is a fundamental cornerstone of our democracy, is that Parliament is sovereign. That is the way we work. We, have, we, we elect our representatives, and they must be part of the process when our rights are going to be changed. Um, so it was right that we took that case. 
I think it was disgraceful the way the politicians and certain media politicized the courts and the judgments and the names they called, you know, enemies of the people. I mean, you're going back to, that's what was, that was the most damaging thing. It wasn't the court case itself. It was the way the media and politicians reported it that actually turned people against courts and against uh, lawyers. And, you know, some of the language that was being used is destructive to our institutions and to trust in our institutions. And that was the most despicable part of what happened. Speaking of the media, that was actually from uh, the Daily Mail just before the ruling happened. Um, and they had like the three pictures of the High Court members. My, I guess my question is here is, uh, what do you think is the role of the media in the way we perceive our law? Uh, of, of course, different, I think different newspaper outlets have different ways of putting that forward. Do you think there's any way that it can be changed to ensure that the media tries to stay neutral, or even if it doesn't try to stay neutral, that it doesn't sort of perverse the way the legal procedures are, are happening? Well, the first thing I'd ban is, uh, we would propose, is no foreign ownership of our media. Um, it is our media. Why do we have foreign ownership of it? Uh, the other thing is that uh, IPSO needs to be replaced. It's not a, a proper functioning regulatory body. Um, and now with, with online, we have to figure out what we're going to do with um, online uh, regulation when it comes to media because, you know, a lot of the abuse I faced wasn't actually on the printed... I mean, yes, we had, uh, you know, the reporting which was very biased and you had, you know, enemies of the people um, and, and all of that happened. But actually online was the worst with the abuse because online articles that have comments underneath that basically, and all politicians suffer from this and it, it is, it has to be addressed. We can't expect good people to go into politics if every part of their lives are going to be outed and they're going to be literally, you know, hate-bombed by actually media, by journalists on a regular basis. So I think the comment sections underneath that need to be sorted out. I mean, the, the media claim that they're not, they haven't published it, so therefore they're not responsible. Well, they are publishers and they are responsible. So there's a lot of work to do there to clean up and make it make going into politics or even becoming an expert or a spokesperson wherever you might end up working you know you you have to be respected in the media space and that's not happening speaking of abuse uh you've recently been a little bit outspoken about your interaction with dominic Raab. i'm not i'm not <laughs> i not, knew you were gonna bring that up <laughs> not, not sure not sure if you're willing to, to share it but i i think my question my broader question here is uh, is, there, is there a way to effectively hold elected officials accountable in private settings? And you mentioned putting the ministerial code into law, yes. um, but do you think there are other ways of doing that? Because things can happen behind the scenes, and when it comes out, it becomes a thing of where people might not have the confidence to essentially say what's happened. And I think that was the case I mean, with the, 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 Well, the thing is, believe it or not, it, it, so there are, the employment laws we would enjoy, anybody would enjoy, or even in an institution like this, the protections that you would enjoy actually don't apply to uh, ministers. It's not just the civil servants, it's the ministerial staff, parliamentary staff, have no ability, they're not protected by employment laws. They're not protected, and there are very few whistleblowing protections. We have to get a system in. I mean, one of the changes we're talking about, quite a lot of changes, but, you know, things like employment contracts for MPs, we elect and pay for them, and yet they have no contract of employment. They don't even have to turn up for surgeries. That's actually optional. You know, there, there's nothing they really have to do, even though we're paying them. So we believe that there should be strict rules of what they should do, what they can't do, almost a contract of employment, oath of law, but there has to be governance in place to protect those. Because, as I said, the corridors of power can be very... When I would use the word dangerous, I mean it. Dangerous place to be. 
especially if you're a young person going into work there um, as a SPAD or whatever it is, you have to have protections in place. And there has to be more transparency, more governance, more processes. So all of that needs to be strengthened. Yeah, and in, in accordance with that, could you talk about, a bit about the Nolan principles? I always hear you talking about it on the media. Um, how, how is putting that into effect going to change the way we hold our officials accountable? Well, the way it works at the moment is the Nolan principles or code, the ministerial code, is, is just that. It's guidance. And the person who ultimately has uh, you, you, yes, you stay, no, you go, is the prime minister. I mean, that just doesn't seem right. Look at what happened to Priti Patel. Look at what happened to Suella Braverman. Look what happened with Dominic Rabbit. It's just not right that it's the prime minister. There should be an independent body that's uh, overlooking the code when it's put into law or on, uh, on the statute. And that's not just for um, MPs. I believe that applies to all people in public office. So institutions, um, any public institution, regulators, those principles need to be put into law and are affected to anybody who is in public service or at the top of, of public institutions and regulators. Because we have a deficit there. We have an accountability deficit that we do need to correct. We've spoken a lot about elected officials. And at the beginning, you mentioned um, them versus us. Um, I wanted to sort of look at this more introspectively. What do you think is the difference between the sort of Nigel Farage, Richard Tice, them versus us, between the true and fair parties, them versus us? So the, well, our policies, I'd say, uh, our political stance is very different. So Reform Party, as many people, uh, or I, we meet people on doorstep who think it's a new party. It's actually 23 years old because it's, it was UKIP and then it was Brexit Party and then it was, uh, you know, uh, reform. So it's actually, its provenance is there for quite some time. Um, and they will, be, they will be standing 500 candidates in the next general election and possibly win because they're actually polling very similarly to the Lim Dems at the moment, which is something to just reflect on. Um, especially in the red walls, red wall seats, they're doing quite well, or very well. Um, I'd say that the massive difference is that they are a right-wing, um, low-regulation, capitalist um, party on steroids. And we believe that, uh, uh, I believe in regulation, I believe that we sh consumers could, should come first, that people should be protected. Um, I believe in responsible capitalism. They believe in, as I say, free market on steroids. So that's um, the major difference. Um, more so, but in terms of like the people, the demographic you're trying to reach, mm -hmm. Um, would you say that you're trying to get more young people than compared to them? Are you looking at possibly women or ethnic minorities? Like, what is your demographic type? So for, for all the polling and all the, the uh, work that we've done, you've just hit all three groups. <laughs> so um, we've discovered that a lot of under-25s feel that um, the parties don't represent them. They're not being heard. They're not being listened to. They're not being represented. Um, ethnic minority groups, women... Access, lack of access to justice for women and children in our country is going backwards. You know, we thought, I started in 96 when I first started my first business talking about the triple bottom line and what we called at that time people, profit and planet. Um, and that we're still talking about that now. We still haven't got there. But what I thought we had done is that I thought we had moved the diversity dial. I thought we had actually got more rights. And what we've discovered is, and the stats are all showing it, is that culturally, socially, economically, there is huge unfairnesses and rolling back of actually fairness and a lot of the equality we thought we had achieved. Um, we don't know necessarily, there isn't one thing that's caused this, but when we know that whenever there are economic challenges and there are financial crises, minority groups 
tend to bear the brunt of that, and we're seeing it again. Um, and on the topic of, of women and ethnic minorities, um, how, is, how has race and gender played a part in your politics and shaping to the person that you are today? Um, in your book, Rise, you talk about how uh, you had to drop out of university um, because of the discrimination that you faced. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that's been perpetual from the start to, the, to, to where you are now in terms of your career. Um, how does that sort of mold you as a person? Um, and if there was a chance to, to change that, what are some of the ways, I know you've spoken about online changes, but what are some of the ways that um, us as young people can even sort of change those very bad stereotypes that people have about people of colour or women? Well, I think actually I've got a lot of hope in your generation because you're pushing back at uh, a lot of what happened and, and the, the regression that we've seen. But um, me personally, a lot of people don't know this. People think that I'm fearless is something quite people sometimes say. And I say, no, I'm fearful. I'm fearful for what happens when we don't speak up. Because for all the abuse and the, that I get and, and whatever it is, I'm not going to get those, let those people own the oxygen in the conversation. So, of course, they don't realise that they fuel me to carry on. Rather than putting me off, it just means I'm not going to let them win, so I'm going to carry on. So they, I have a very perverse way of thinking. Um, so they actually, because that, that's the alternative in my view, is that uh, if we don't speak up, then those people who were, I'm afraid this is where I think we are, and it's not just in the UK, it's across the Western world, we are seeing a rise of the right. And actually, it's interesting. I was saying earlier that um, the word post-truth entered the uh, Oxford Dictionary in 2016 um, with Trump in America, with Brexit, with whatever was going on here. It's really interesting that the shifts happened around that time. Um, and prior to that, we've always, in all societies, we've had extremists on the fringes of society. What has happened now, and I, I blame our leaders for this, is that they've been permit, permitted to be part of the mainstream conversations and to be in the centre rather than on the fringes. And I think that's what we have to fight back. And I think that's what you have to fight back for, is to say, no, we won't let this happen. We need to ensure that uh, tolerance, compassion, courage, independence, all the things that we treasure as a society, the, that make the foundations that we walk on solid, are the things we have to fight for. Um, and we have to push back. We have to push back, or else they win. And it's as simple as that. I mean, I think I'll share with you some of the things I experienced, I think, um, over the years of both court cases. And I didn't just pop up from nowhere. One of the things people say is, oh, you popped up from nowhere doing these um, court cases. And I say, it took me 30 years to pop up from nowhere. Um, because just to share with you, in answer to your question, some of the things that I've experienced as a woman uh, of colour is that, um, so you've read, I don't know if any of you have read recently, but the idea that uh, there was a report saying that um, ethnic minority women, uh, mothers, that go into maternity ward, actually are hugely, they, their outcomes are much, much worse. Um, and actually that happened to me. So that's when, that's when I first became an activist, a true activist, because my um, eldest daughter, who will be 35 on the 7th of May, when she was born, um, she was starved of oxygen because the hospital I was in would not listen to me. I knew something was wrong, but they wouldn't listen. And so she wasn't saved. She wasn't given the care that she needed. I wasn't given the care I was needed. So she has a lifetime sentence of being disabled, of being having special needs. And that could have been saved if they had listened to me. And what I, the first, my first battle was I tried to get the hospital and I lost that battle. I lost, um, I tried to get... Um, my records and her records published so that we could see what was going on in hospitals, and I failed in that. 
But when she started, as, when she reached school age, uh, at that time, so we're talking 35, well, now then it would have been, she was uh, 32 years ago, that uh, statements, special needs support in schools, wasn't available for everybody. You had to have money, you had to have specialist uh, consulting uh, reports, doctor's reports, you had to have an awful lot of money to get proper access to support. And I felt that that was totally unjust, that every child, every parent should have the right to access so their child could be the best that they could be. And that's when I started fighting for her. And the result of that fight is I actually drafted legislation, a part of the 1996 Education Act, which, which made special needs government, governors of school have to provide that provision. So that came from a very personal place, a personal experience of mine, suffering from the system and having to experience what that was like. And I just felt that was unjust, that I had to go through that and that other women had to go through that. My next one, which also is along those lines, is um, uh, you know, the, in, in March 2015, the Modern Day Slavery Act got royal assent, and that was a huge amount of work that I got involved in that, because sitting in a park, again, sitting in a park with my then child, a, a younger child, um, I sat next to this woman who kept staring at my son, really, and I was really worried because I thought, something's wrong. And um, she trusted me after a few visits to the park, and I found out that she had been trafficked here. Her passport had been taken away, and that her, my son looked like her son that she hadn't seen for about eight or nine years. And then I discovered in London that there were all these women and, and girls being trafficked for domestic servitude. And that's where that act and the work I started doing with that started. So I haven't always gone out of my way to find battles to fight. If I see something that's wrong, and I, that's the one thing I would share, if you see something that's wrong around you, you don't have to have a big idea. It's something that you see. You can actually start in your own backyard sometimes. Actually, it's the best place to start. Somewhere where you have an experience and you can actually do something that helps other people. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, final question before I hand over to the audience. Uh, I wanted to ask, you've spoken about uh, university reforms that you want to have, so lowering the tuition fees from 9,000 to 7,500. What are some of the, what are some of the, you've mentioned there's a review that you've mentioned that you want to implement for that to happen. Could you talk a bit about that review and how that will benefit students in the long run? Well, it's got a lot of student reforms that we're looking at. Um, if I start from, the, from sort of younger children who then go up to university, is that um, we weirdly are one of the few countries that has three terms. And the reason we have that, and we have this long summer holiday, even though all the data and statistics show that that's when children are groomed, it's when they get approached by gang members, when they're neglected by parents. There's a lot of negative things that happen in that term, in that long summer holiday, which was a long summer holiday so children could help bring in the crops. Post-Brexit, they might need to go back out and bring in the crops, but um, right now they should be in school. And so one of the things we're talking about is to bring in a fourth term, but to make it non-academic, to make it a sensory term where you do art, music, drama, to make you an, a strong individual. It's about confidence. It's about making... Because this idea that all you need to learn is, is academia... That does not make you a rounded person. It does not make you able to contribute to innovation, to lateral thinking. So we want to bring in a sensory term that does that six-week term that is all about you um, for young people. Also, we've, the data, because I, I, a lot of what we're doing is based on the data. We're not, not perception or outlier data, but looking at data and, looking, and speaking to experts and practitioners. And a lot of the headmasters and teachers are telling us 
that we're losing young people at 13. They're losing the, the, the real you know, um, sort of energy and inspiration they get from learning. The, um, our, our data on GCSE and maths, I know <laughs> Rishi Sunak keeps talking about maths, but it's English as well. We have some really dire figures of, of low pass rates. Um, we have to do something, and all the evidence we're getting is that you need to inspire people at 13, not 16. So we're talking about a different way of doing math, so bringing practical subjects from 13, so that if you decided that academia is not for you, you can go into coding, or you can go into art, or you can go into mentoring, whatever it is your skills you want to do in practical maths, practical English. So we're actually looking at a completely different um, curriculum from 13 as well. Um, uh, from university, we think to attract the best and brightest to um, work in public services, NHS, civil service, etc. After five years, if you work for more than five years in a public institution or public service, then your um, fee would be, your loan would be wiped out. So you actually, we would wipe, uh, it would be eradicated if you stay in public service for five years. Because we think that's a way of attracting the Brighton, you know, keeping people here um, and making sure that they become part of, of a stronger future for us. But it's only right if you're giving public service. Why should you have that debt hanging over your head at now soon to be 9%? It's, it's totally ridiculous. Thank you, Gina, for sharing everything you have so far. Does anyone have any questions? Uh, over there. Well, I think it would have to be the constitution of that independent body would actually, we think, would, should be a makeup of citizens plus experts plus judiciary. We wouldn't be from one, uh, and not sitting judiciary or sitting politicians. So you think some people would have to know. That's one of the things we'd put out to an inquiry. That's why we said we want an inquiry to look at this. And I think it's really important in lots of these issues that we're talking about, such as electoral reform, ministerial code, that we actually do include citizens' assemblies. I think we have to close the gap between citizens and politics. Yeah, I mean, the, it's the, the trust deficit is so wide now that I think we do have to find a way of bringing people into the process. Ooh, gosh, hello. <laughs> you all the way up there. Well, I think the wind of opportunity, which is another reason why I went into, the, to, into or decided on the True and Fair Party, thank you for that question right now, is that um, not only is voter sentiment different, but there is a very strong possibility that the outcome of the next election will be a hung parliament. And with a hung parliament, individual voices and issues become much more amplified. And if you look at the, what happened when Lib Dems went into coalition, they would lose most of their members, I think, if they went into coalition again. So there is an opportunity. And one of the things we've done, um, and this is including Reform UK, because I do speak to everybody. I think it's important we speak to everybody. Um, we have all agreed, bar the two main parties, that electoral reform is our red line. 
and all of us have agreed it because it's obviously in our, in, in our interest. But by doing that, it means that uh, whoever it is that goes into government, we don't know. But, but the stats, the true stats, not what you're reading in the polling in some of the papers, is showing that it's, we really are looking at a hung parliament. And at that stage, we could propose things. And one of the other things we've been uh, discussing cross-party is the ending of, of foreign ownership of media. We think it's very important. And so do others. Uh, David I'm a liberal, so it won't be a surprise that I agree with a lot of what you've said. <laughs> but you have got me worried. Um, are you going to put up candidates against liberals in the election? Because we need every vote we can get to beat the Conservatives. Um, and the other thing I want to ask you, um, a lot of the things that you care about and I care about have traditionally depended upon convention people behaving like gentlemen, and we know how well that's worked. <laughs> uh, are you also in favour of a written constitution? Thank you. Thank you. Two very good questions. So, the, yes, we are standing candidates. I'm standing in Epsom and Ewell against Chris Grayling. Um, we have seven candidates at the moment, and we probably have another five. All the seats we've chosen are outside of Labour's top 150 targets and outside the Lib Dems' top 50. So, for example, next to me is Monica Harding, who I think will definitely win against Rahab this time. Um, we've, you've got Sutton, which I think you'll win as well. Um, and so it'll be me, hopefully, um, in a sea of Lib Dems. Um, so uh, we, we've been very careful in the seats we've chosen. Uh, there's a high proportion of what I call One Nation Tories in the seats that we've chosen who do not see the Conservatives as their party. So my pitch to all the opposition parties is let's all focus on our target seats because then we get a proper uh, win, if you like, a solid win. Um, in answer to your second question, I don't think we have time for, uh, to debate a written constitution. It would take how many years? How do we decide what's in it? I'm much more... That's why I'm, I, I believe in the root of we do almost a semi-codified constitution, which is ministerial code into law, uh, prorogation powers into law, uh, reform of the House of Lords. So we can do things that in, I suppose, in essence, are putting some of those things into a codified format. But I don't think we will get to a, you know, where do we even begin on, on, a, on a written constitution? It's a huge task. And so much is broken now. I think we, there is more urgency. There are things we can do. Because one of the other things I think is sometimes, you know, it's the, um, we don't have to change everything to signal a change in culture. And when you said about how things have gone, the good chap, you know, principles have gone out the window. We need to have cultural change, I think, that it is unacceptable for people to behave in a certain way. And I think if we have some of those changes, it will sign point a, a, a cultural shift, I'm hoping. Any other questions? Oh, yeah, <laughs> come to yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah please. No, I, well, one is it, the referendum was a vote for Brexit and both cases, uh, yeah, it, it was never about, it couldn't stop it. Neither case could stop um, Brexit. And the first case, we were very careful in Miller One that our timetable didn't interrupt the government's timetable because the government's timetable was for January and we made sure. I mean, it is, I cannot tell you, my team, my legal team, I mean, they slept on the floor and worked night and day 
to get that case through in the timetable, the government's timetable. So we actually asked the government what their timetable would, was to make sure that we didn't frustrate it. So, no, it was making sure that it wasn't done in an illegal way. Because just one, one point I want to make on this is actually is often lost. Article 50, to trigger us leaving the EU, it says in it, the 126 words in it, but it basically says that you have to leave, any departing member has to leave along the lines of their constitutional requirements. And our constitutional requirements is that it went before Parliament. Now, if we, we, want, if we hadn't done that and we had have just left, the EU was debating whether we then became a pariah state because we would have broken both domestic and international law. And nobody really quite knew what that meant. The problem with Article 50, even though we British lawyers drafted it, is that it was really more of an ornament than an instrument. It was actually never meant to be used. It, it's not a great, it wasn't a, a very well-written bit of, of law. So it needed clarification. But there was a lot of talk about what happens to the UK if we actually did go ahead. So it needed that clarification. Thank you. Um, one of your um, party's promises was to uh, mandate voting for those over a certain age. Um, two questions on that. The first, how does that relate to people's ability to selectively participate in democracy or arguably is a part of democracy to, to choose not to vote? How do you think that interacts with people's individual liberties um, in that regard? Uh, and secondly, how would you go about enforcing that? Would it be via fines? Would it become a criminal offence not to vote? Practically, how would that work? And, and would things like, for example, spoiling ballots, would that also be a, um, going against your mandate to vote? So practically, how does it work? And, you know, so, so your right to spoil your ballot is part of that right. So we'd say that as long as you do that, and we, the, the closest model we've looked at is the Australian model. So the Australian model is one that's a, it's a compulsory participatory process. Um, and from everywhere we've looked at, that seems to be the fairest. But again, we would put that out to, an, to a public you know, debate about it, a, a citizen assembly on it. For, personally, for me, the right to strike off or spoil your ballot is, is also a democratic right. Um, I was just wondering, you spoke about like danger of power. Um, following on from like the Miller cases, do you think that the courts have appropriately fulfilled their role in providing checks and balances? Like, obviously, your cases are about the separation of powers. Do you think, following on from that, the change that you hope to see has come about? I think the courts are very nervous now um, because of how they were politicised. It's not the question of, you know, and we've seen it now with the, um, you know, lefty lawyers that they're being called for standing up for uh, asylum seekers and also for Shamina Begum was a, a perfect case, you know. That is their, that's the role of the courts. But the way they're being politicised, they are very nervous. I speak to a lot of judges and lots of lawyers um, who are very worried about the way our present um, Home Secretary talks about the, the courts and justice um, and... and it's not new. This is not the, the um, politicising of courts, the rule of law, um, separation of powers. is actually a playbook for most uh, populist movements, it, uh, you know, and, and trying to attack judges. It, it's, it's, as I say, it, it's sort of like the Janet and John playbook of, of populism. 
but it's very dangerous. And we have to try and... I worry on two levels. One is the rhetoric, but I also worry that there are some opportunists who are knocking on the court's doors too much because by doing it too often, you are actually going to make the courts go, no, we just won't accept it. Um, and on judicial review, when the government tried to ban Boris Johnson in particular, I call it his revenge act, because he didn't want anyone else to bring a judicial review. He took it so personally that I'd taken a case against him. Um, but it's, it's more difficult. It's much more difficult now under the Courts Act to actually bring a case. Uh, over A mic, the mic is there. <laughs> in previous questions, but um, my question is, in such a strong two-party system, how do you propose your party will achieve any meaningful change um, in a system designed to oppress minority parties, particularly when discussing such big picture issues? Because I think there's an opportunity now with the hung parliament, with the sentiment of uh, people saying we won't vote for any of the above. We've not really seen this atmosphere Travelling around the country last year, from Yorkshire to Leeds to wherever we were, we did, I think, 30-odd tours or something, but we've never heard the them and us like we're hearing at the moment. They're all the same. There is a shift in voter sentiment. People are not behaving as tribally as they have done in the past. They're looking for something different. And if we can activate some of those who are in that disenfranchised, politically homeless, won't vote for anybody, we want change, but we don't want the policies, if you like, then we can make real change. Um, for me, success is even if we get this debate on the table, not just winning seats. I mean, we'll try to win seats. I understand how difficult it is, but we're going to try. And I just think this is the opportunity. This is the time when we can try. And if we can persuade those parties, as I said earlier, to just stick to their target seats and actually be sensible and actually do tactical voting in its proper sense, then you do have a chance of bringing in, you know, I, I'm, my, someone said, who is it that you look up to? You know, for me, it's Caroline Lucas banging on about the environment every single day for the entire of her career. It's now mainstream politics. So if we, if I can get into parliament or a couple of us can, and we can bang on about electoral change and modernizing the machinery of government every day, then it becomes mainstream. You know, why shouldn't there be checks and balances on MPs, just like all of us? They should follow the same rules the rest of us have to work or follow if we go into any place of work. That's all we're asking for. Uh, we'll go there and there. Yeah, if you can. Um, first of all, uh, <coughs> thank you for speaking here today. Um, I was just wondering, in the context of growing fear of disenfranchisement, what are your views regarding the, the requirement to show ID when voting? Oh, simple. It's a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Because, oddly, the stats that show the, the very my small amount of voter fraud that happened was actually in postal votes. And this doesn't affect that, which is crazy. So you've got two million people who are going to be disenfranchised. Actually, what's very worrying is that the, as it's today is the deadline, and less than half of the people actually have it. For what we, we, can, we don't know for certain, but it looks like there's a huge number of people who don't have it. And in the last by-election, we know that lots of people turned up and weren't aware that they had to have voter ID. And then I think it's blatant playing the generations against each other. How can you possibly have a bus pass for one age group, but you can't have a student pass for the other age group? 
I mean, it is, it is disenfranchising a huge number of vulnerable and young people, and I think it's wrong. And it's just, and when people say, oh, but we have children in other countries, whatever, it's, we're not talking about other countries, we're talking about here. So it was definitely done in a manner that is to assist the Tories and solve a problem that doesn't exist. been a directional shift in judgments made by the Supreme Court uh, since the departure, since Lady Hale left, who has famously took a very liberal approach to judicial review. Since who, sorry? Since? Uh, Lady Hale. Lady Hale. Um, I think they're being... Uh, Lady Hale did not make a liberal... Uh, she, it was a unanimous vote, so it wasn't Lady Hale's vote. If she was the only person who had done, then you could have accused her of that. Um, the, the judgment is, is very sound. And actually, what's very strange in both Miller cases is that actually they're textbook year one constitutional law cases. They're not actually that difficult at all. The, the, actual, the actual principles of law are pretty simple. Um, you know, and, and the fact that the government didn't put up any evidence or it shows that they knew that. Um, so it's not, it's not, it, they're not difficult constitutional cases. But, and so the court didn't have any problem ruling on them. But I think it's, going back to what I said earlier, they're worried about the politicising of the courts and the way it's, and, and they're being very cautious. Um, I was really, just, just to counter that, I was really intrigued by Adam Tolley's report um, into Mr. Rabb because I thought he wasn't going to be quite as uh, legal as he, or, or as strident as he was. Um, and this whole example of politicising, for Mr. Rabb to now say that there's a new low bar set for um, civil servants and for, you know, the bar was set by the High Court in 2021, and that's a bar he was judged by and found guilty by. There is no new bar, there is already a bar. So that's an example of him trying to politicise, you know, not just a lawyer, but also a court ruling. Um, so I think we have to be very careful, but the, but the courts are nervous. They are nervous. To the second of your uh, cases for a moment, do you not think, um, whatever you think about the law, whether the law was right or wrong, that the Supreme Court fundamentally mis mistook parliamentary sovereignty for parliamentary scrutiny, in that uh, whilst that there are many cases throughout the year when Parliament does not sit, but we would not say that Parliament is not sovereign. You know, the, the, the authority of the Crown in Parliament is, an, is, is, is still there. What the, the issue that was at stake here was that Parliament was not sitting and therefore was not adequate parliamentary scrutiny. But the premise of the case, which, which was that, the, that, that sovereignty was, was infringed upon, doesn't necessarily make sense in the context of there are many examples of where, of where Parliament's not sitting, but Parliament's still sovereign. The issue is actually parliamentary scrutiny, not parliamentary sovereignty. No, that's the wrong issue, because it wasn't... Recess is a normal part of our parliamentary system. Prorogation is a normal part of our constitutional system. But if it's for the purposes to shut down Parliament, that is not. And so closing it down for five weeks, so then we went past the 31st of October, so the Ben Act could not be used, and we would have left with no deal, was illegal. And it was the purpose of the prorogation that the case was about. It wasn't about the act of prorogation. Um, obviously, both your cases have brought a lot of attention to judicial review. 
And like you said, there was a lot of hostility from certain people, people like Johnson and other members of government and parliament. And I don't imagine that anybody would go so far as to totally ban judicial review. But I can imagine a situation where it might become, might be so many restrictions imposed upon it, that it becomes a redundant instrument. As somebody who's on the inside, how close are we to that sort of situation? And if it were to happen, what can we realistically do to reverse that process? Well, I'll waylay your fears, because in some of those acts that got uh, royal assent last year, April last year, they did try to bring in clauses or include in the laws, in the bills, clauses that made them non-justiciable, and they were struck down. Uh, because they realised that you can't do that, because basically what you would have done if those clauses were included is that they'd all be in court. You'd actually end up with more cases in court trying to go against the Act or actually question the Act as whether they were legal, going back to the fundamental fact of Magna Carta, so that it actually, they actually took them all out. Um, so, so that didn't happen. They did try, but it didn't happen. Um, and I think the thing is with judicial review, and I think the government, any government who believes in scrutiny should allow, obviously, judicial review. And what's, what's, if you look at the data, the government, more, most of the time in judicial review, the government wins. So it's actually, they should want judicial review because in the majority of cases, they're proven right. The judicial, this whole idea that it overturns lots of decisions for public bodies and institutions or government, it's not true. The data doesn't bear that out. Yes. Um, back to your discussion of Lord's reform, um, something that I found quite striking, despite the fact that obviously our issues with things such as hereditary peers um, and the problems that exist, are that during these sort of constitutional crises that we've spoken about, so the prorogation of Parliament, the triggering of Article 50, um, and now arguably the um, supposed introduction of a British Bill of Rights that seems to threaten similar things. Um, lots of members of the House of Lords have actually been the ones to step up yeah. um, and call the government out on these things. Um, is that a role that you would like to preserve sort of in spite of the reforms that you're also suggesting? Absolutely, and that confirms my belief that they are an oversight legislative chamber because that is what they're there to do, is to actually protect and make sure that governments are not bringing in laws that are actually damaging to, to society, to sectors, to business. I mean, they do this all the time. Um, and the fact it's got a lot of judges and lawyers in there means that they're able to do the job, which is why I go back to the fact that, you know, if you look at halving it, a lot of the people who are put up there as, um, you know, peerages for prizes for cronyism or favouritism and support, I don't think patronage shouldn't be part of that process. Um, that one you'd like to know that we say that you, um, any prime minister who's been in office less than two years can't actually do a nomination list. Well, so it's the sort of things we're talking about as well. So um, I think it's really important that they stay up there and that they do that role. And actually, you're quite right. They've been the ones. Actually, I've been doing a lot of work up for three years now on the online safety bill. And that has been really interesting looking at the debates in the Lords and the Commons on what's gone back and forth on that. I thank you. You uh, briefly went over the Ulster clauses in uh, Acts of Parliament with the previous question. Um, I was going to ask, in the Dissolution and Calling of Parliament Act of 2022, um, the purported uh, exercise of 
the act was also uh, deemed non-justiciable. Do you think that that provides a blueprint for future legislation and creates a act that cannot actually um, be justiciable? They, they would like to do that. I think they'd like to put that in every single act to make sure that it's not justiciable, but I just don't think they're going to get away with it, especially when it involves rights. Um, they are going on the statute book, and I do worry that the Bill of Rights, if it ever gets through, um, but Mr. Rabb um, and the backbenchers may, or not in ministerial posts, maybe it won't now, but there are other things to worry about that are coming down the line. Um, we'll have to wait and see, but... Hopefully they won't be in power soon, so they won't be able to bring them in. But again, I go back to my point, it doesn't matter who's in power. No government should be able to do that, I don't think. That's, that's why we need electoral change. I'll take two more. Go here and here. Can we do the questions together? And then... One of the drawbacks of not having a written constitution is that any government can undo the actions of a previous government, which means that any promises made by governments are totally worthless. What's your view on that and what do you think should be done about it? It's, it's a really important question because, especially talking about future issues that are coming down the road, big seismic changes that are going to happen to society, to work on a three to five year, it's actually really a three year cycle because they spend two years and just figuring out what they're going to put in the next manifesto. You know, you can't, those short term policy solutions to really huge issues is a big problem. And I think what I'd like to see is we get to a place where we start talking about ring fencing certain areas of policy, such as defence, such as the NHS, that we don't, areas that are not, that are not, uh, that are outside the football, the political football that we get. And I think. But then I go back again to let's get rid of first past the post because if you have a, a system where you don't have majority governments in the same way, then there has to be collaboration and there's much more give and take. And then you end up with much more longevity in policy. And that you've seen it around the world. So that's one of the reasons when I think, and I, when I say that I'm th talking about things like obviously climate change, but also the digital revolution that we're going through, aging of the population, um, commodity shortages, you know, there's, there's you know, we are facing the possibility that the next biggest crisis is water in not so long a time. So, you know, we can't make these short-term policies anymore. Yeah, someone over Uh, no, go first and then, yeah. I think there was two of us, but um, thank you for being here tonight. I'm curious, where is your party seeking its inspiration? Is it looking to other states? For example, your education reforms sound almost German. Where, where are you seeking your inspiration? Thank you. All around the world. So our procurement, um, we're looking really closely at Norway on procurement because they've done some amazing things. Um, when it looks, believe it or not, uh, there's a, we were just talking about it this morning about the PBO, which is the Parliamentary Budgetary Office, which is in Australia. So every party, including an independent party, has to submit its um, proposal manifesto to an independent office that then actually looks at what the costings will be. And that's then published to the entire population. So, I mean, something like that, that's incredible, isn't it, to be able to do that? As I said, even an independent candidate can actually submit their manifesto for costing. 
I mean, here we have the IFS, and everyone's always on the on the, their seat waiting to see what Paul Johnson says. Um, but, you know, and that's including the budget. So we, we are looking at inspiration around the world. Um, but, yeah, we, we can't possibly be... But at the same time, you have to be mindful of we are not the rest of the world. So, for example, whenever we, I hear the government talking about Singapore on, on Thames, we're not Singapore. We don't have the culture. We don't have uh, that sort of government. We don't... We, we, we're not, so we can't just transport things. You have to look at how they apply to our particular population. And one of the challenges is our north-south divide, because we have the biggest north-south divide of any European country. And so that is challenging when you're bringing in national. So one of the big things we have to look at at all of this is also the, in the um, sort of regional implications of national policy that we're suggesting and how that works with local government, etc. So, but we are looking, we look everywhere. Does the person still want to ask a question over there? Hi there. Given like the political climate, um, do you think their sentiment for sort of new age education, like the sensory sort of fourth term that you were talking about, how would you market that to the public if there isn't public sentiment for that at the moment. Well, we talk, we talk to parents, to students, to um, um, me pediatric mental health services, to police. So we know that this is something that actually <laughs> stakeholders who we've spoken to love the idea because there's so much... People are very worried about the mental health of our young people and this whole concentration on academia and what I call a mantelpiece children is you have to have a certificate on a mantelpiece for you to be worth anything. And the focus on that is, is, is really damaging to mental health and well-being. So we, we, we speak to the stakeholders, not just um, experts, because experts can also fall out with each other, especially academic experts. <laughs> um, so stakeholders and practitioners are a very important part of the people we test our ideas on as well. Um, I'm going to round up the questions here. I have a final question. Um, one of your uh, party's proposals is to ban the sale of alcohol <laughs> in the House of Commons. I can I tell you that's not going down well. In yeah, the... <laughs> I was, well, that, that was my question. How do you think members of Parliament will react to such a... Oh, there's a couple of them they don't like. So that's one they don't like. And the other one they don't like is to say that they have to sit more often because they only sit for 33 weeks a year. So they don't like the idea that we're saying they have to actually be in Parliament more often. Um, but... Um, yeah, that one went down well. And then my comeback is, uh, so tell me which other place of employment has alcohol at every bar. It's, they're not many. You have your rooms where you have dinners and you have, you know, you know bank, whatever it is. So you, those rooms can still have alcohol. But the fact it's just there for everyone to walk into. Um, and unfortunately, it's a place where a lot of the bad behaviour happens. And we know that from a lot of the women I speak to in Parliament, a lot of the young people love the spats. Alcohol fuels a lot of the bad behaviour, and that's the other reason why it's a very serious issue. Well, Gina, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence. I've had an absolute pleasure interviewing you. Please join me in a round of applause for Gina. Thank you.